be seated. Amen. It's refreshing to sing songs of the kingship of Jesus Christ, to reflect on his power and sovereignty. That's our constant theme, really, but it definitely has been over the past several months as we've worked our way through the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah. We began going through Zechariah um, at the end of September, and with only a break here or there, uh, we have continued to do so. And today we come to the conclusion of our series through that book, Zechariah chapter 14. And you'll look at that and you'll say, oh, there's, there's, there's a lot there. Uh, there's you know, 21 verses, and um, we've you know, become accustomed to perhaps smaller snippets, but it is all one story. It is all one thing that's happening. And it would actually do a disservice to the text to break it up any other way. So Zechariah chapter 14, beginning with verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem 
shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they're still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. Their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them. So that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague, like this plague, shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there shall be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves... Then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that don't go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Great God and most gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us as we um, grapple with this very important, but to us perhaps um, uh, unclear text. The problem is not us, uh, sorry, the problem is not you, the problem is not your word, the problem very much is us and our inability to see things as clearly as we would like, as clearly indeed as we should. But we pray that you would guide us and lead us and that you would help us to humble ourselves before your word and everything that we have thought, everything that we believe, everything that we bring to the table this, this morning, that it would be humbled before your word. And we ask, Lord God, that, that um, we would not miss the, uh, the wood for the trees this morning, uh, but that we would go away with a very clear message that is applicable to us even today from these words. In Jesus' name, amen. It is very interesting that in God's providence we come to a passage such as this in a week of escalating tensions in the Middle East, a week that has seen the worst conflict between Israel and Palestinian settlements since 2014. A month ago, leaders of the uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihadist group, Hamas, called young people in particular to engage in a massive uprising. 
mosque goers were encouraged to fight and they were provided with stones to throw at any police outside. At the end of April, alarming reports began to circulate of random assaults on visibly religious Orthodox Jews, which were at least in part fueled by an ugly attack a Jew TikTok trend, where Palestinian youths were encouraged by Hamas to violently assault Orthodox Jews on camera for the social media site TikTok. These incitements continued to worsen, culminating last weekend with a television speech from a senior Hamas official in which he called on Palestinians in Jerusalem to behead Jews in the city streets, telling them that they could easily get a knife for five shekels that they should just go buy one and that their memory would be honored eternally in paradise. Then, of course, we saw between the 9th and the 10th of May this past week, thousands gathering at the Temple Mount complex. Um, it, is, it was Jerusalem Day, a day to celebrate the city of Jerusalem, the uh, nation of Israel, and thousands of Palestinians gathered with piles of rocks and makeshift weapons to attack those gathering for the celebrations. The police banned Jews from the Temple Mount due to safety issues, and um, yet the um, uh, Jewish passersby were still assaulted in the streets, drivers pelted with rocks and other objects. As the week progressed, communities became more and more out of control. Um, uh, Jews and Arabs alike um, um, uh, breaking apart in their communities, uh, fighting in the streets, and that led to um, police actions being taken. Synagogues, restaurants, and businesses were set on fire and police were compelled to respond. When they responded, that was used as just cause for a barrage of rockets from uh, Gaza and from uh, elsewhere, um, uh, Syria, for example. A number of competing religious factions, each of them trying to center their own agendas, some with the Jerusalem-centric agenda, that is, that we will conquer Jerusalem in the name of Allah. Some with a Gaza-centric um, uh, vision, that is, that this will be a, a um, uh, well, to say a free state would not exactly be accurate in our terms, but an Islamic state um, uh, there, detached from Israel. Throughout the week, a relentless barrage of rockets, numbering in the thousands, were launched into Israel in an effort to overwhelm their Iron Dome missile defense system. Half of these were quite impressively intercepted. Hundreds of them fell back or were knocked back into Gaza, and others hit various targets. In the midst of these attacks and the retaliatory responses that they brought, many men, women, and children, Israeli and Arab, Jew, Muslim, and Christian, have suffered. Why 
Why such violence and aggression? There may be any number of aggravating factors. Indeed, there are on all sides of the issue, as there are on all sides of any issue. And there are more than two sides here. But a major factor is, and we must be clear, the obliteration of Israel and the annihilation of the Jewish people. Indeed, Hamas says in the preamble to its 36 article founding covenant, Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it, just as it obliterated others before it. Article 6, sorry, 7 of that covenant says that the day of judgment will not come about until Muslims fight Jews and kill them. Then the Jews will hide behind rocks and trees, and the rocks and the trees will cry out, O Muslim, there is a Jew hiding behind me. Come and kill him. This attitude is nothing new, nor is it exclusive to Islamic fundamentalists in the present day. There was a time, and there may still be in dark corners of this nation, where here, such things were said, pursuant not of an Islamic fundamentalist agenda, but we might say a white supremacist agenda, or any number of things that you could attach to it historically. Bear in mind that the Holocaust was within the lifetime of elder members of our own families and community. It's not that long ago. Similar efforts to annihilate the Jewish people have been made throughout history, even in the absence and without the complicated politics, and at times, we must say, discriminatory politics and policies of a Jewish homeland. Lest you think that a, the formation of a Palestinian state will necessarily solve all such ills. Before there was such a homeland, there was an agenda to kill the Jewish people. It goes all the way back into this book. For as long as the Jewish people have been set apart by God for God, they have been singled out for destruction by the nations. Sometimes that is simply hatred, unbridled hatred. For when there were righteous kings, they still had enemies. Sometimes, and we must be clear at this, it is the judgment of God upon a people who have habitually throughout their history rejected him, his prophets, godly worship, and chiefly the Messiah who is Lord over all, Jesus Christ. The scene that Zechariah paints in the text that we read a moment ago then is not entirely unfamiliar to us. If you have paid any attention at all to current events, if you have read anything at all of history, this is something that we see time and again. And yet what is happening in these verses is something on a specific day. It is not just a general trajectory of history. It is a part of the end times plan of God. For he does, he does use the language of a unique day. 
of a special day, of a day that is called throughout Scripture the day of the Lord. At the end of September last year, we began journeying through this prophecy, and now we reach the end. All throughout, Zechariah is proclaiming a message of reassurance to the Lord's constantly endangered and embattled people. And while he, he gives that reassurance throughout this book, he concludes with a scene once again of people embattled and endangered, their very existence seemingly under threat. All of the messages of the, this book culminate in this place. And there are many messages throughout the book, but all of them serve one message, and that is the message summarized in verse 9, and the Lord will be king. That's what it's all about. So lest you lose sight somewhere, if I lose you somewhere in, in, in the course even of this message, or you've just read through and you're already lost, Zechariah 14 is sending your head spinning. Um, the message is this, go away today, if nothing else, this message, the Lord will be king. You can look back at the events of this past week and you can say, the Lord will be king. We don't know what's happening today as we are gathered here. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. But you can guarantee one thing will remain unchanged. The Lord will be king. You, you, you can have all sorts of um, uh, hypothetical viewpoints in your mind, different proposals and policies that you think will bring peace. That, that if only, you know, because as we sit in our armchairs, we have all sorts of ideas for world peace that we think, oh, if only they did this, it would happen. But, but the thing is, we, we, we don't know all that's going on. One thing that we do know, Jesus said there will always be wars and rumors of war right up to the end. But one thing we, we do know, we can know, whatever crisis you are facing, whatever conflict you're dealing with, whatever is going on in the world around you that might not touch you but has some impact upon you physically, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually, the Lord will be king. The Lord has been king. To say that the Lord will be king is not to deny the eternal past kingship of the Lord. He has been king, always, for eternity past, before the ages began, before the foundations of the earth, before there was um, the, 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 the concept of time and space as we know it. The Lord has been king, unless you lose sight of the truth in the midst of your day today, the Lord is King. The book of Hebrews says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe that the Lord who has been King, the Lord who is King, and the Lord who will be King is none other than our Lord and Savior Jesus. The text before us proclaims that message loudly and, yes, clearly. The text is in some ways complicated. We have to admit that. Unless you've figured it all out. Um, in which case, more power to you. But I've, I've been braced for this moment for um, months, indeed, since before I started. If there was one thing that might be hindering me from getting to this point... 
um, uh, even beginning to preach through Zechariah, uh, it was quite likely Zechariah 14. And then I found, I believe, I was making heavy lifting of it once I got there. But there, there, there are some complications. Some of what it describes, for example, have parallels in the past. To, to the extent that some, who I believe are misguided, but some will, will read this and say, ah, this is about the siege of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. That doesn't exactly follow, though, when you get to a point where it says uh, the Lord will stand on the Mount of Olives in that day. It repeatedly says on that day, on that day, and there is a convergence of a lot of things on one day, and we simply do not have that scenario in um, um, Zechariah 14 or really anywhere else where this particular subject is handled. While it describes things that have parallels in the past, it's not completely like for like. And, 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 and while we can learn from the past and we can say there are shadows in the past, what it's describing is in the future. We can say it's definitely in Zechariah's future, but as we read it and as we examine history and as we see the trajectory of this world, it, it seems that it's our future as well. A day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. When the world is judged by God, when His people are saved, when His kingdom is established. The text, though, it's, it's still complicated. It uses symbolism, metaphor, and imagery. It is a part of something called the apocalyptic genre. That is, it's about the end times and throughout history. Whenever you have that genre, there's a lot of metaphor. There is a lot of symbolism. But make no mistake, the metaphor and the symbolism is meant to convey literal realities. And some of what is in the text, it means quite literally. It, 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 there, there are different categories in one text. Some things should be interpreted literally and some should be interpreted metaphorically. And that's, that complicates our reading of it perhaps. Also, we have to consider that while this prophecy was spoken on its own, and while it was written down on its own, well, alongside the other 13 chapters of Zechariah, it is not alone in the canon of Scripture. The rest of Scripture prophesies um, uh, of this day as well. And so we, we find ourselves perhaps um, ending up with a days-long study that we simply don't have scope for in um, uh, this, this message because you, you might want to uh, go home and read what Daniel has to say about this day or maybe what Ezekiel has to say about it or consider the promises of Jesus or potentially the teaching of the apostles or at the very end of Scripture, the book of Revelation, all of which can be laid aside this text and studied and you can draw up various timelines and make various applications. So, some, some of these may be quite literally accurate. Some of these timelines, some of these, these ideas as to how it all fits together. But unfortunately, while they're literally accurate, they may pay no attention to the Bible's use of symbol and metaphor. And, and that's not fair to the genre of literature. But some of these interpretations are so heavily reliant on symbolism and metaphor that it's very difficult to discern much at all what's being promised. 
what will happen and when. And people have rid the text of any meaning to the initial hearers, never mind us. There can be an unhelpful fixation on the end times that is driven by speculation and can lead some into a state of great fear and anxiety. I remember as a, a, a child in the U.S. Um, meeting many people like that, experiencing some of that, even myself reading some of the literature, watching some of the films uh, representing that. And of course, as you approach the year 2000, there were a lot of people that were saying, this is it. And, you know, over the years, I could probably identify something every year where someone somewhere is saying, this is it. And I grant that perhaps in running from that, I might personally run too far the other way. It's a possibility. What we must do is anchor ourselves to the scriptures and what they're saying. Um, you know, there, there, there are, for others, a, a dis, there's a disinterest in the subject, which means there's no urgency. And because they're disinterested or because they've so spiritualized the text, there's no meaning to it, um, really, other than a few ideas here and there, that there's no urgency in personal holiness because the, the return of the Lord is not imminent. There's no urgency in discipleship to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus and to grow healthy believers and to live lives of holiness. There's no urgency in our evangelism. So I don't know, maybe in, a, in this a, a room such as ours with so many different people from different backgrounds, we may actually be all across that spectrum. But what I want to point you today to from this text, the message is clear. Ultimately, complications are there. Grant those. Engage with those. Wrestle with those. I wrestled with them all week before I decided I'm not going to get bogged in the complications and um, I'm going to focus on the clarity. You can do that on your own time and we can have a great discussion about it, I'm sure. But the essential clarity of the passage is that the Lord will be king. And for total clarity throughout, again, I must say, based on everything I've said previous weeks from Zechariah and the text before us now, I want you to be absolutely clear. I believe that the Lord who will be king is one and the same as the Lord Jesus Christ. That shouldn't come as a surprise. It was spoiled in the advert that I circulated back in September. The Lord will be king. The supremacy of Christ in all things. From beginning to end, Jesus Christ is supreme. Jesus Christ is sovereign. Jesus Christ reigns. And I want to say, first of all, if you're wondering about how that's worked out in this text, first of all, the Lord will be king over conflict. The Lord will be king over conflict. Because in the text, it says that I will gather. The Lord is speaking through His prophet, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. So lest you be afraid, and I think sometimes when we see things kicking off in the Middle East, especially Christians sometimes do get a bit afraid. They're, 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 I see things like, oh, this is satanic. This is demonic. You know, Satan's really at work. And there's this fear of, of, of like, but 
friends, we do not serve a sovereign Satan. Satan is the adversary, and he is every bit of him inferior to Jesus. Jesus Christ is king. And, and as king, he says, the Lord God sovereignly, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit says, I will gather the nations against Jerusalem. It's not the first time he's done it. Read, re, read your Old Testament. You know, there was an ancient heresy that said Christians don't have to read the Old Testament. Again, it was a heresy for a reason. It's important. This book is for you too. Read the Old Testament constantly. God is, is waging war against His people. Why? Because of their sin, because of their rebellion against Him. But something else is going on here. This is, this is the end. Remember we said last week that God will preserve a remnant. He will, he will put this remnant, this third, in the fire, through the fire. And what is He doing? I think it all works together. It's one prophecy, this bit. The fire through which they go is expressed in the text before us. And the outcome of that fire, we read it last week, is that the people will call on His name and He will answer them. They will say, they are, uh, He will say, they are my people. They will say, the Lord is my God. And so now we have in chapter 14 an exposition of what that looks like. God is putting His remnant through the fire. He gathers the nations against them. The spoil is taken. It's quite descriptive throughout. It, it, it um, repeats itself even later in the passage to, to talk about what this will look like. God gathers the nations against them and People go into exile and the rest are cut off from the city and the houses are plundered, the city's taken, the women are raped, atrocities are all over the place, horrific things are happening. But the Lord is king over conflict. And the Lord will be king over conflict. And so, verse 3 says, The Lord will go out and fight. He gathers the nations against the people. He's put them through the fire. Two-thirds perish. One-third are preserved as through fire and purified unto worship through that fire. But the Lord now sees, objective accomplished, I'm going out and I will fight against the nations who have come against my people as I fight on a day of battle. He means business. Verse 12, this shall, it talks more specifically about, if you skip down to verse 12, more specifically about what the Lord will do to judge the nations. It depicts it in um, quite graphic terms. Uh, the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. And it describes it as being struck with a plague. Rotting flesh while they stand on their feet. Eyes rotting in their sockets. Tongues rotting in their mouths. Some have, have um, projected onto this. And you can take it or leave it, you know, ideas of nuclear warfare. And yeah, I mean, it, it has that look to it. But the point really is not what people are doing. This is God doing this. And it is, it is um, um, in fact, some have said that, and there may be truth to that here, 
that this is not simply a momentary judgment of the Lord on His enemies and His people's enemies, but that this is another description in some way of the judgment eternally of His people. Oh, it, it certainly starts there. And it ends, yes, in what is described elsewhere as the lake of fire. The long and short of it is, God's enemies will not prevail. Wickedness will not win the day. Evil will not triumph. Sin will not have the last word. Satan will not be crowned king. The hordes of demons will not usher their antichrist into the celestial city. No, the Lord will be king. The Lord will be king over conflict. And, and everyone's rallied. Even, he says, even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. The, the tribes are coming out to fight alongside the Lord. And the, indeed, the, the, the Lord is coming with all of His holy ones to do righteousness and to do justice. Because it's right. It's in the Word. Righteousness. God is right, and He will be right, and He will be shown to be right fully and forever. God does not leave His people to fight alone. In fact, what we see is God seems to be doing the fighting for them. God does not leave His people to be finally defeated or fully destroyed. God's purposes are ultimately for their preservation. And that is why He strikes the peoples who come against His people. There's plagues. There's the impoverishment of the nations as their wealth is plundered. Wealth that they have plundered from Israel, as He's already said. But the Lord is not only king over conflict. The text tells us that the Lord will be king over creation. Keep reading. The Lord goes out, verse 3. He fights against the nations as when He fights on a day of battle. On that day His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. The Lord is king over creation. What we see here is the ground shake and tremble and quake. Mountains are moved and, 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 and split in two. High places are made level because verse 10 talks about the whole land being turned into a plain. And he says north, basically the, if you do the coordinates, north, south, east, west, the land is a plain, but Jerusalem is elevated. Jerusalem is lifted high. And you can take that literally or you can take it symbolic, but the message is this, the Lord is, clean, is king over creation. He's in control of it all. You know, uh, when, when, when the Lord is king over conflict, how does He engage in conflict? Zechariah 14 is talking about conflict in terms of plague. 
God sends a plague on His people's enemies. Now, when He's going to demonstrate His kingship over creation, leading His people out of plague into promised land, He takes them through a valley that He creates through a mountain. Does any of that ring any bells? For what we have here is the ultimate exodus. The exodus of exoduses. The one to which the exodus ultimately points. That the enemies of God's people who enslaved them, who bound them, who oppressed them, were defeated. That God went to battle with their gods, with their, the demonic entities that they served. You, if, if you do a study of the plagues of Egypt, we did some years ago. But if you do a study of those plagues, you will see that there is a, a correspondence between what God did and the realms of the Egyptian gods. God was saying, your gods don't control creation. I do. Therefore, you and your gods have no claim over my people. You have no authority to keep them from going out into the desert to worship me. But since you think you do, I'm going to send plagues that you thought your gods controlled. But I control them. I'm going to turn your gods against you. I'm going to turn the forces of nature that you have worshipped against you. I'm going to turn the various things that you thought other entities controlled against you. And I am going to lead them not into the wilderness to worship me for a few days. I'm going to lead them to a land that I have promised them. And so what do we have here? God's people once again oppressed. God's people once again afflicted. God's people once again under the rod of the nations who do not know or love the Lord God. And God sends plague upon the nations who have gathered against His people. And God leads them, this time not to a sea where they're trapped and He splits the sea. You thought that was crazy. He splits a mountain. Because nothing can stop God. Nothing will, will stop Him from saving His people. And so His people are, are, everyone's running. His people are running as they were in the days of an earthquake that's mentioned elsewhere. Actually, another prophet hundreds of years before Zechariah talked about the earthquake of Uzziah. It was a traumatic event that marked their history. And he's saying it will be like that. You will run, but there's safety in this valley. They are finding refuge in the Lord. He controls creation. He is king over creation. He speaks to the sea, and it separates so His people can walk through to safety. He speaks to the mountain, or rather, in this passage, He doesn't speak to the mountain. He stands on the mountain, and it cracks wide open. That is the power of God. That is the kingship of Jesus Christ. That day there shall be no, verse 6 says, light. Ah, but, but there is light. Well, there, there's, you, you say there's no light, but cold or frost. But there shall be a unique day. Neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. But um, um, uh, this this. 
you know, so the cold or frost, that's dependent on, I mean, that, when there's no light, cold creeps in. You know, it's May and we have these cold nights still. There's no light. There's no warmth from the, the, the sun or anything. But there's no cold. So you would think without light there would be cold, but there's no cold. Nor is there frost. The, the clear, those very clear nights are sometimes the coldest. It bites at you. There's no frost. But there's something else at work here. It's a it, it, multi-layered. I always find um, languages not the most helpful thing to bring into a sermon, but it's helpful at this point. The, 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 the wider construct of this, light, no light, cold, or frost, you have a footnote in your Bible probably that says something along the lines of uh, the meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. Do, do you have that? Something like that? So when they start breaking it down, it can mean this, which they've gone with, or it can mean something about the stars and the sun and all of that being congealed. That is, they're coming, they're, 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 they're just, they're not, they're not there. What's going on? And yet there's light. Read in Revelation, it says there is no need for the stars, there's no need for the sun. And there is no darkness. The Lord will be the light and His glory will shine the heavens. It's not a bad thing what's happening here. It's a good thing. The Lord is saying, you've never seen a day like this, but I have. Notice that there are a unique day which is known to the Lord. And the, the, the sense is known only to the Lord. And he, yes, he knows going forward what he's going to do. But the Lord is the only one who has experienced a day like this. Because he made a day like this. The first day when he said, let there be light. And there was light. But it was days later that he actually created the stars. God knows how to generate his own light without bodies in the heavens. And God is going to do that for all eternity because He's Lord over, He is King over creation. Rough places are made smooth. Valleys are lifted high. High places are lowered. All of it is under His control. And you know, it's God's providence not only that I'm dealing with this passage a week following severe Middle Eastern conflict, but I believe it is God's providence that I am doing so on Ascension Sunday. For when Jesus Christ ascended into the heavens, He did so, Acts chapter 1 tells us, from the mount called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, and there, standing on that mountain before He ascended into the heavens, the disciples came to Him and said, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Uh, and we can laugh because we're like, oh, you know, these guys don't get it. You know, they've seen His crucifixion. They've seen His resurrection. But Jesus doesn't laugh. Jesus, Jesus actually does not deny their request. He says... Um, the times and the seasons are not for them to know. He does not say, haven't you learned? 
you know, I'm creating a new Israel. Haven't you learned? I'm separating, you know, it's already done now. No, there's a time yet to come. But they see Jesus, who they've seen in the flesh, risen from the dead, and they're like, now is the time. Because who is standing before them on the Mount of Olives? The Messiah. The one who's conquered the grave. And they're like, well, is now the time that the, the mountain will split and that the kingdom will be ushered in? Of course, we know from what Jesus said that they should go back to Jerusalem and power from the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And so the kingdom is inaugurated, but it is not yet established. And so from the Mount of Olives, Jesus sends them out. He goes into heaven and the angels say, why are you looking up into heaven? He'll come back the same way he's gone. And that's what we read in Zechariah. All about that. Jesus one day will come down the same way he went up. And when he does, the world won't say the same. Because he's king. And we will see him as he is. The Apostle John says, that is, not, not, not through the lens of our, our fallen fleshly eyes, not with the expectations that, that we project onto things, not with the confusion and the uncertainties we have about the end times and how they'll all fit together. But then on that day, I guarantee you, we will look back and say, oh yeah, that's what it's all about. It makes sense. I understand it now. I see it. And we'll have all eternity to spend pondering the beauty of God's end times plan. Where does this all culminate? Jerusalem, the embattled and endangered city, shall be inhabited. It's aloft, it will remain aloft, it will be elevated above all others, and it shall be inhabited. Filled once again, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Notice, there's, he says full stop, there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. There are other times throughout Scripture where God says there will never be a decree of destruction by a certain means. For example, the flood. Do you remember that? Where, 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 where the Lord promised that there would, be a, there, there would not be a global, decimating, totally all-encompassing, destructive flood again. But he didn't say that there would not be utter destruction again. In fact, Peter says, what happened in the days of Noah was flood, but what will happen on that day will be fire. Thus people will be consumed where they stand. But that's not the end. The kingdom is established, beautiful, glorious. Streams of water, verse 8 says, living water flowing from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. Even the Dead Sea. If you, look, if you draw a map, this sea that's, that's down and unfed and salty, Living waters, flowing waters, fresh waters, drinkable water will flow. And it's not weather dependent because, again, he's king over creation. It will be in the summer as it is in the winter, a flourishing land, a beautiful land, a prosperous land, 
A glorious land that reflects its king. Something to look forward to, is it not? Creation groans, the Apostle Paul says. Now, all creation groans. But it groans as a mother giving birth to a child. It hurts now, but the pain is temporary. There's a baby at the end of it. New life. Joy. Gladness. Delight. And that's what we're headed to. The Lord Jesus Christ will lead us out of plague to our Red Sea, a mountain split in two wherein we will run for refuge from all. There will be a way of escape for the people of God. And He will make all things new. Thirdly and finally, it should be obvious, but I'll say it. The Lord will be king over His kingdom. We, 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 see far too, we see far too many kingdoms where the king actually isn't really in control. Has no authority, no power, no rule. Actually, we live in a kingdom like that when it comes down to it. But the kingdoms of the world, they, they, they come and they go. They have no lasting authority. And it's only the authority that is given to them which can be taken from them or the authority that they give to themselves. And eventually, they die off. But this kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Verse 16 speaks of what that kingdom will look like and how this king will have the universal worship and affections of people. And that's very important because I don't believe there is any global king that has such a claim. The only one indeed that we read in Scripture that has such, um, such a following or one that parallels it is the Antichrist. But even then there's a remnant of the people of God, right? So... What we have now are people from all nations, or at least representatives from all nations, going up, from up, those of the survivors of the nations, going to Jerusalem year after year to worship who? The King, the Lord of hosts, the one who has come down and is reigning. And, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And it keeps emphasizing this, that the families of the earth will go to worship the King and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. What is the Feast of Booths? Well, if there's a festival that you want to keep, that you want to celebrate, it would probably be this one. The, the, the Jewish festival is also called Sukkot. Um, it, it's uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a festival of pure celebration and joy and thanksgiving. It was a time of joy and celebration. And, and yet that, that joy and that celebration, which involved feasting and just dancing and praising and all sorts of fun and games going on, but it was all worshipful. It was directed to God. It was a party with a purpose, a worshipful purpose. 
It celebrated the ingathering of the harvest. And it expressed thanksgiving that while at the same time commemorating the faithfulness of God to the Israelites when they journeyed through the wilderness. And whatever this is, as if it is, and I believe it is a, a, a feast of booths, a type of a greater feast of booths yet to come, something that goes far beyond that, that we will be celebrating and worshiping before the Lord forever. That it will be constant joy. That it will be constant delight. And that there will be times specifically set aside for unique concentration on the great things that God has done. We, in, we live our lives through the week. I hope you're a Christian outside the, these four walls in the same way that you are inside. But we have once a week where we, we all seek together whatever we do in the week. So, so too, I believe, in eternity, there will be unique opportunities for specifically focused reflection and worship. Thanksgiving. It's, a, it's an interesting thought, isn't it? Well, it's one from the text. They go up for a time of pure joy, gladness, fellowship, communion, hanging out with one another as they reflect on all that God has done for them. In Christ. It's a beautiful image. A Jewish scholar has written, the joy of Sukkot, though, was offset by a pervasive concern about water. As we give thanks for the harvest just completed, we begin to worry about the bounty of the next one. That Sukkot should manifest angst about rainfall is not surprising. It's only in the winter months that we get rain. And so the margin of safety is precarious. Imagine celebrating Sukkot. Imagine celebrating the Feast of Booths without having to worry about water. Without the anxiety about whether you'll have a harvest to celebrate next year. You don't have to worry because the water flows forever in the winter and the summer from the presence of the Lord. And also I must say that whatever... Whatever else is going on in this passage, again, it is a celebration and an observance of the kingship of Christ. That He will reign forever and ever. And that means that everything is affected. Everything is touched by that. That should lead us to worship Him. That should lead us to give thanks. The Feast of Booth celebrated God being with them in the wilderness. What are we going to celebrate before Jesus when we're there eternally? We're going to celebrate the many ways God was with us through our wilderness. We're going to celebrate the exodus that we've already experienced, whereby we were brought from death into life, where, 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 where Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives, at the bottom of the Mount of Olives, actually, and prayed a priestly prayer on our behalf and was betrayed at the base of the Mount of Olives, and was taken to the city and lifted up on another mountain where He gave His life for our sins. We're going to give thanks for that. We're going to celebrate that. Not that He gave His life for us and stayed dead, but that He gave His life for us and is risen. 
forever. And that he gave his people the power of the Holy Spirit. Because as he himself said, during the Feast of Booths, on the last day, the great day of the Feast of Booths, if you want water, you're anxious about next year's water, the next harvest water, if you want water, come to me. And I'll give you water of life flowing forever. And it says it's about the Holy Spirit. So we know and enjoy something of the blessings of the past signs and the future now as followers of Jesus Christ. I hope all of that's making sense because it should lead you to celebrate now. What did they do when they escaped plague and when the Lord brought them through the Red Sea? They got to the other side of the Red Sea and Miriam pulled out a tambourine and began clapping and began singing and led the people in a song of praise to God that concludes, the Lord reigns forever and ever. And she asks in that song, who is like you, Lord? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. And that's what they did then. How about us who have seen so much more since then? God's presence with us, His faithfulness through us, through generations, through millennia, who have been saved not just from temporal kingdoms, but from devilish, demonic, enslaving kingdoms, death to life in Christ. How great is our God. How wondrous are His ways. The Lord reigns forever and ever. And do you think when we get on the other side of that third crossing, the valley through the mountains, it will be any different. We get through the mountains and the song goes up. The Lord reigns forever and ever. The Lord will be king and his name one. And people will worship the one Lord God and there won't be any questions of idolatry. Armies will gather, even, no, actually especially against the Lord's people. Now, they will gather against you who are grafted into the olive tree of Israel. But whatever your conflict and whatever your crisis, if you are trusting in Him, the Lord is king. The Lord will be king. Trust him. Creation groans and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be king and his feet will stand firm and secure. And in the quaking, he will make a way for you to escape. Trust in him. The nations rage. The people of earth plot, devising schemes against the Lord and his people. But their kingdoms are not ultimate. They are filled with people who reject God and godliness. Or at best, people who compartmentalize Him into a sacred category separate from their secular lives. But the Lord will be king. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God's people will live in security and safety forever, and everything will be holy to the Lord. Everything. So Zechariah concludes, the bells that the horses wear are holy to God. The pots, the menial pots 
are as worthy and as exalted as the ones that fill the, the temple and are used to pour out offerings before the Lord. Everything will be holy before the Lord. Why? Because the Lord will be king. God's people will live in, 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 in holiness forevermore. Trust in Him. And as you trust in Him, now endure for the future. You have a glorious inheritance laid up for you by Jesus in heaven. And it's a kingdom here on earth. No, indeed, even ultimately, a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. And we shall be with the Lord and we shall worship Him forever. We can endure. We can trust because we are sustained by the renewing waters of the Holy Spirit. And they flow through our lives in the summer, dry months, same as they do in the winter months, if we would take and drink of them. And we can live lives, whatever our conflict and whatever our crisis, we can live lives of joyful, celebratory thanksgiving to God for all He has done. A song we learned not so long ago in the course of this series very powerfully makes the point that the Lord of hosts is with us. With us through the fire. With us through the flood. With us as a shelter. With us in the storm. It says, though oceans roar, you are the Lord of all. The one who calms the wind and waves and makes my heart be still. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains move into the sea, the nations rage, I know my God is in control. Zechariah, at one point in these words, says, the Lord my God will come. My God. He can't help himself saying he's mine. And then he says, the Lord will be king. Let's trust in him and seek him today. Amen.